Welcome to the 16th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As we record this particular podcast, another Midwestern winter is drawing to a close. Farm fields and gardens are still sitting idle under a sloppy mix of snow, mud, and frost. But for vegetable operations, this is a busy time of year. It's when farmers start seedlings in the greenhouse in preparation for spring planting. Some of these farms are preparing seedlings with a specific customer in mind. In fact, these farmers know their customers by name. Those consumers are people who have paid a fee up front to belong to that farm. In effect, these consumers have become members or subscribers to these farms. In return, they will receive weekly deliveries of organically produced vegetables throughout the growing season. They will also have a chance to create a direct connection with their food and the people who produce it. It's been called the ultimate way for consumers to know the faces behind their food. When a consumer joins one of these farms, they are sharing in the bounty as well as the risks of production agriculture. That, in a nutshell, is the essence of community-supported agriculture. Called CSA for short, this method of connecting farmers and consumers has been growing steadily in the United States since 1986, when it was launched by two operations on the East Coast. During the past 20 years, this system has spread to every region of the country. One estimate is that there are 1,700 of these kinds of farms nationally. There are over two dozen serving the Twin Cities, Minnesota region alone. I recently visited one CSA operation, Spring Hill Community Farm, where Michael Reset and Patty Wright are beginning their 15th year. Spring Hill, which lies 80 miles east of Minneapolis-St. Paul, raises 35 different vegetables and herbs on around 5 acres for 225 households. Over the years, the operation has grown from a very part-time endeavor to a full-time enterprise that supports Mike, Patty, and their three children, Katie, David, and Maggie. Before starting their greenhouse season, Mike and Patty took the time to talk about their operation. We began with a discussion about the CSA model itself and how they got involved. The CSA idea, we first heard about this uh, in 1991. We were listening uh, to public radio. we heard about this idea as a uh, way to market produce and create a social relationship, and we thought to ourselves, we could do this. Uh, we're very naive. Uh, <laughs> so we visited uh, one of the first CSA farms uh, in, uh, in the upper Midwest, Philadelphia Community Farm in Osceola, and with the idea that we really wanted to pursue this idea of a CSA, a community-supported agriculture. And, and the basic idea for us, as I understand it, goes like this, is that we we will grow a certain amount of produce that is raised organically uh, and supply as much of that as we can to uh, member households. People will sign up for the year on an annual basis for... Uh, uh, receiving about 20 weeks of vegetables, uh, whatever seasonal, so lettuce, spinach, etc. in the spring, potatoes, carrots, onions in the fall. Uh, so it's very it's centered around uh, the seasonal aspect of uh, growing produce in the upper Midwest. And in exchange for growing healthy organic produce, uh, the members, uh, customers, if you will, will uh, support the farm financially. So there's a relationship that says we're going to do this for you and you will do this for us. It's mutually uh, beneficial. And for members, they are assured of uh, an adequate supply of, of good, healthy produce 
throughout the season, and we as farmers, uh, we get a guaranteed uh, salary, and we know that our budget will be covered. It's a very rare thing, uh, I think, in agriculture today that you can actually write a budget uh, on an annual basis that you can follow. Um, we're not just uh, in the situation of uh, we take what's left over at the end of the season. So we actually can create our budget, we can create our income level, and in turn we can create a, a community uh, that uh, is mutually beneficial. So that's some of the background as I understand it. And we came, Patty came out of a social organizing background, I came out of education, and so this kind of thinking was was uh, uh, not uncommon to us. And so we went originally to a few friends of ours and said, look, this is an idea. Will you go with this for a year? And people said, yeah, this sounds great. And uh, uh, that was 18 households our very first year. We had very little experience farming. and uh, But over the years, we've uh, taught ourselves, attended a lot of conferences, leaned on a lot of other growers to uh, put together a, uh, a farm where today we have about 200 and 25, 30 households, something like that. Uh, and we still know everybody. Uh, as I get older, I don't remember names quite as well, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> we still, uh, that's a big part of what we do as our CSA is that we focus on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's been the strength of our CSA is that it's been very community oriented. And within the whole CSA movement, uh, there's lots of different ways to do this. And I think that's one of the beauties of CSA is that if you understand who you are as a, as a farmer, if you understand who your community is and you work together, you create the farm that works best for your community. There's some people who uh, have no interest and no time or inclination to be involved with uh, the day-to-day operations of the farm, whether it's financial planning or harvesting and washing or delivering vegetables. Ours, on the other hand, that is integral, uh, and that's how we started, and over time that's been... Uh, self-selecting. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because farmers in general, whether it be conventional or organic or whoever, are kind of famous for being introverted. They'd rather um, spend time in the fields or with the animals than with their customers or with people in general who might be buying their food. Uh, The CSA model kind of turns that on its head a little bit, it seems. Uh, You guys, really to make it successful, have to spend a fair amount of time with the people who are eating your food and get their feedback and and that is that been a challenge or is that something you guys enjoy or it, it is something we enjoy it's both it's something yeah. we enjoy and, and it is it is I would say challenging um, but we we have set up our farm in a way that's that's different maybe than somebody who isn't who's going to farmers market mm-hmm. um, in that our delivery system is done by our members. So each Tuesday and each Saturday, several households come out and do some of the harvesting with us and um, washing and packing up the vegetables and then driving it, it back to the Twin Cities. And so, so we set up our farm and our work in that sense to involve people who aren't farming every day and who um, are anywhere from you know infants to 70 and 80 years old. Mm-hmm. So so we think about that as we plan, particularly our harvest days, but our farm in general, how is it going to be welcoming to people? And um, 
we don't always approach things in terms of the efficiency of a particular task, but more about how we can involve people in it. Um, the CSA concept to us has always been about more than just vegetables. It's about relationships. So the relationship that we have with our members, the relationship that they have with each other, and then also with the land. So we try and you know get people out to the farm and. Well, and it, do people just uh, apparently then people don't just join a CSA just to get organic vegetables? It, it, it sounds like it goes beyond that a little bit. That if they wanted to get organic vegetables, that's all they were interested in doing. They could go to the co-op or or farmers market or whatever. But this sounds like it goes a little bit beyond that uh, as far as uh, maybe a feeling of community or relationship there. It does, in my opinion. Uh, certainly, within other CSAs, there's a lot of room for uh, a relationship that is centered on vegetables and that works extremely well for some farms. Uh, for us however it is more about uh, relationships, it is about that sense of community and some sort of social contract uh, that recognizes that there is a link between farmers and consumers and developing that, uh, that relationship. Uh, so, for, so for us it is much more than a marketing opportunity. <coughs> you guys, I know you do, you try to really create that sense of community beyond just uh, providing the bag of vegetables through events, and you have a kind of a unique delivery system uh, as well, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, some of the things that we do um, to sort of nurture that community aspect along, or you mentioned, Brian, the um, delivery system. So we ask each household to come out at least once during the season and um, help with with a delivery so they you know they come on that day and we harvest together and wash and have a potluck lunch and you know that way we get to meet each member of the farm they get to meet us and a few other members of the farm um, and get to get to be here as well so that's one thing that we ask each household to participate in and then additionally we plan a number of work days on the farm. We always have a couple of spring work days where, um, you know, we plant or weed or any number of sort of spring activities. And then in the fall, we always have a fall work day that where we're harvesting the squash together and the potatoes, and we make soup from the vegetables on the farm and um, press apples, and and then we usually have a harvest. Dinner in the Twin City. We also try and, I guess, have events both in the Twin Cities and at the farm, just because the you know the farm is a drive, and we can um, maybe it's more accessible to people if it's in the Twin Cities. So we we have a harvest dinner every year to wind up the season, and we just had a square dance a couple weeks ago with mm -hmm. our members in the winter. So so we do try and bring people together, and and I think those things are important for us in the model we're trying to create, which is about bringing people together and um, having that um, community aspect to the farm. Yeah. What are the, what's the range of age and what kind of people belong to a CSA like this? From my perspective, I think that it's a very broad range of people. I think the common thread is that uh, people are concerned about their food, how it's grown, who grows it, are the people that are growing it taken care of, is it nourishing their household, is it nourishing the household of the members. So I think that's probably a common thread. And beyond that, uh, the income level uh, is widely uh, divergent. The uh, 
educational background is uh, varied, uh, and and uh, so it's a wide range of people. Age range, of course, is from newborns to uh, um, you know folks in their eighties. Mm-hmm. This is our fifteenth year, and so one of the things is that we've watched the families wow. of some people. Uh, who have been members right from the start, you know, uh, who were five, six, seven years old, eight years old at the time, and now they're in their early 20s off doing something else. And, and uh, uh, we'll see uh, how the next generation comes back. But uh, <clears throat> uh, it does give one pause. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating, you know, to think about that. You've seen some people grow up on your food. <laughs> I would think that this model, whether you're a conventional farmer no matter what you're raising, or even if you're organic or doing other alternative systems, one of the big headaches is marketing and figuring out what am I going to do with that production at the end of the season or during the season or whatever. I would think that the fact that you've kind of got that taken care of by the time you put your first seed in the ground, hopefully, I would think that that would really uh, allow you to focus on the production end of it and, and other aspects of the farm and not have to deal with that huge problem of marketing. What, are we going to be able to get rid of all this stuff? You, you already know beforehand. Isn't that right? Yeah, and I do think, I mean, that's something we've seen as a definite advantage in terms of the marketing end and the budgeting end. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, it's early March now, and we've sent out the informa- sign-up information to our members for the season. So in the next couple months, hopefully, we'll be taking care of that marketing end. So yeah. by the time we're planting in the field, we're all those shares are sold. Our vegetables for the season right. are sold. And then in terms of the budgeting, um, you know, we know the amount of money we're working with for the season. So we can... You know, we know what our labor requirements will be, all those sorts of things. Um, and it, t- it takes a huge stress off. So, you know, last year when we had a hailstorm, for instance, and lost some of our crop, we didn't lose our budget. We were sharing that risk with our membership. Um, in, in some years, it may work against you. You know, maybe you have a bumper crop of something and right. you don't get the extra money from that. But I think overall... You know, the line we use is shared risk and shared bounty. When the farm has bounty, that's shared amongst the members. And, and when we lose a crop, that's also shared amongst the members and the farmers. Yeah, so. that's a good point, I think, to make is it, it's when you sign up to be a member of a farm, you're, sh- you're sharing in the bounty. But also there with farming, it's, it's an unpredictable way to, to do things and you can have a drought you can have storms and like you said a hailstorm last year and so you have to share in that as well uh, and after 15 years I, I guess I was thinking back 15 years ago when you guys were first starting this out you were new farmers yourselves and this was a new model and those first 18 households that started with you they must have really trusted you or uh, that was uh, uh they, they did trust us. They shared more risk than <laughs> But it was such a fresh idea at that time. Uh, and when our very first year, we had a killing frost on June 21st. Wow. And oh, wow. <laughs> we had a lot of cabbage that year. But I think there was, I think there was excitement uh, in the sense of, uh, 
this is really how it works. Mm-hmm. And and for those uh, those first eighteen households, the majority of whom are still with us, there was this sense of okay, I understand how this risk thing works. I, I maybe I didn't get all the tomatoes I wanted this year, right? But I did get a lot of cabbage. I did get potatoes. Uh, and for us as vegetable growers, rather than having three or four or even two crops that we have to rely on, we can uh, diversify and spread out the risk, is that in any given year, uh, there's going to be something. Uh, even with last year's hailstorm, which was quite severe, we still had uh, uh, a lot of produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, It changed what it was. So instead of... Uh, uh, Cucumbers towards the latter part of August and September, um, we had spinach and we had other greens that we were able to replant. Uh, there was enough time to do that. So that, that risk is mitigated through, uh, uh, through the, the idea of sharing all of it um, and so that the loss to any one person is, is not that great. And then secondly, as from a farming vegetable grower's perspective, we're able to uh, diversify and and uh, spread out the risk in that way as well. I think I would just add that, interestingly enough, I think that hailstorm and and some of the loss that we experienced with that sort of deepened some people's relationship mm. to the farm. That you know they understood maybe a little bit more what you know what the experience right. is, of a farmer is when they lose some of their crop. And we would get notes from people, um, you know, affirming that that. You know, they were able to talk with their kids about mm-hmm. what a hailstorm meant, or that they weren't getting this crop because because of the weather. And mm-hmm. um, I remember the line from one of our members who grew up on a farm and put it very well, and I think was able to. Uh, I mean, he had such a great perspective on it because I think he did grow up on a farm, and he said, uh, "Farming is as weather does." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was. His communicating to us said to me at least uh, that this just is one little bit of of knowledge, one little bit of wisdom that he was able to kind of share with his kids. Mm. And you don't get that when you're getting your vegetables at the. No, you'd see the price go up. Yeah, I mean, that would be the consumer end of things. Is typically the price would go up, maybe to the extent even that you don't buy it. Right. Uh, and that's how the risk would be shared that way, but. Uh, not on a day-to-day yeah. way it is right now. They have a frost in Florida. They'll just uh, the price will go up, but just long enough for them to get source those that produce from somewhere else mm-hmm. where they didn't have a frost mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. Is is this? Um, do you think you guys could have gotten involved in uh, farming without this model? Is this something that's that's uh, uh, particularly attractive to a young uh, farmer who doesn't have a lot of uh, financial resources it sounds like maybe it could be a way to a foot in the door uh, I mean could you guys see yourselves involved in farming any other way I think that uh, this is a great way for somebody uh, with a little bit of vegetable growing experience uh, to enter into a commercial operation because uh, it is low capital mm-hmm. uh, it's mostly labor particularly on the smaller scale if you go into a larger scale, of course, it's like a lot of other farming that there's a fairly significant capital requirement. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you can raise a lot of food on on three to five acres, uh, enough to generate a modest household income. In fact, uh, with a minimal investment, mm-hmm. uh, 
you, it's still required, but it's not the kind of investment that's required to do uh, 500 acres of corn or 1,000 acres of corn or what have you. So it is a way that uh, people can, uh, uh, relatively low risk, try an aspect of farming uh, and uh, see if it works. Uh, you guys have a very high return rate. I think, it's, uh, in other words, over ninety percent of the people who belong one year sign up again for the next, the following year, and yet there are people who don't sign up again for a CSA share. And this is true of other CSA farms as well. What are some of the um, some of the main reasons you hear f- from people for not signing up again? And, and what are how have you if you tried to deal with that uh, situation? Maybe. Um, kind of helped keep that sign-up rate high every year and keep that satisfaction rate high? Yeah, I, th- I think obviously there's some of those things in where people's lives change, they move or whatever, that you know people come and go for those sorts of reasons. But, but one of the main reasons you hear that people leave is it's too much food or they don't know what to do with all those vegetables. Mm-hmm. Or So we've each year we survey our members about... Um, there the past year so that they can let us know you know was it about the right amount was there too much of this too much of that so we can make some adjustments based on kind of what we hear from our members and I think over the years we've tried to really think about what's going in the bag and so you don't pile on a lot of one thing Mm -hmm. it's um it's more it's varied so that if if they don't like tomatoes, half the bag isn't tomatoes, right. for instance. Or um, thinking about um, sharing recipes with people. So we send out a newsletter with our um, with our bag of vegetables. That that's also a community building piece. I didn't mention that earlier, but we share in that newsletter what's going what's going on at the farm that week. So if mm-hmm. we just planted garlic, we'd you know be letting people know about what's involved in planting garlic. Okay. And, that sort of thing. But then we also share recipes. Half that newsletter is recipes that, um, that's based on what's in the bag that week. So giving people ideas of how to use what's in the in the bag that week. Um, Some people have called it supermarket withdrawal. From a, <laughs> is that you, as a cook, as a chef, as a preparing food for your household, you have to think differently. It's not what you want to cook, it's what's there. Right. And so that takes a long time to make that shift to say, okay, I really felt like tomatoes, but I've got potatoes, so what do I do? Uh, And that's a transition that uh, works better for some than it does for others. Uh, So that's one of the other reasons why people wouldn't rejoin. Uh, There's also that sense of perceived value. Uh, Most people would acknowledge that the dollar value is is there in our share uh, without question, but what they would question is whether they're making good use of that food dollar. Is it, uh, if, if, for example, they're not eating uh, over a third of the vegetable because they don't like them, well, then they're not getting the full value out of it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be rather eclectic in your taste and willing to uh, look at lots of different foods and, and enjoy them and try different things. So I, I think that's uh, going way back to one of the earlier questions. That's one of the common threads that a lot of people who join CSAs have is that they have a they have a love of food, mm-hmm. and so they're going to get varieties, they're going to get vegetables that they might not normally get, but feel adventurous some enough to go after them and find a recipe and and uh, 
convince their kids or coerce them or threaten them to eat that, <laughs> whatever it is as well. Yeah. I think, too, that first year can be overwhelming for lots of people because yeah. they have no idea what to expect. It's it's hard to really describe the amounts. And, and, of course, it varies from year to year based on the season. But if we can get that second year, I think it's so much easier for families because they kind of know what to expect. And they've started um, gathering some recipes. And um, so if you can assure people that, you know, the first year is overwhelming to many people right. and that the second year looks different. Mm. Um, I think that's helpful. And clearly there's some people, too, who think the food is just too expensive. Mm. And, and that's based primarily on their perspective of what food costs, say, in the general marketplace, which I would counter with is underpriced and, and uh, done so on the backs of uh, migrant labor. Right. So I think it's not that our food is too expensive, it's that other food really isn't reflecting the true cost, the cost of transportation, the cost of, of uh, uh, fair, fair labor. One thing I wanted to ask you about is, I know one thing that's been talked about with the CSA model, and of course every farm varies, but <coughs> some farmer farms really, um, as part of the community aspect of it, also have get a lot of input from their members on not the day-to-day operation of the farm, but kind of what's going to be going on in the short term and long term as far as planning and even budgeting. And um, some farms have what they call a core group, a group of members. Is that something you guys have as a, as a core group that kind of advises you a little bit on on uh, your operation? We, we do have a core group, which is a group of 10 to 12 people that are members of the farm that bring you know, bring various skills and expertise to to the farm and to the farm planning. And for us, that piece has been really helpful because it helps us take into account um, the member perspective. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess sort of the classic example that we use is we call the homes where our vegetables are brought to drop-off sites, and our members call them pickup sites. So we sort of bring one perspective and they bring another, and it, um, it's it been helpful as we think about planning for the farm in both the short-term and long-term to have that really solid perspective of our members. And I think they've pushed us um, to really think about being sustainable in the long run, hmm. um, whereas we might make short-term decisions that might not be so sustainable in the long run, right. financial or otherwise. Financial, I think, primarily is where the core group helps us. But they've sort of pushed us to think, you know, is this going to be okay 10 years from now yeah. or, you know, or five years from now? So I th- it's been a very, very helpful thing for us. Would you like to meet the faces behind your food and join a CSA farm? Well, late winter and early spring are the prime times to sign up. In fact, many farms are sold out by April or May. The Land Stewardship Project publishes a directory that describes CSA farms servicing the Twin Cities area. That publication also has information on how to join CSA farms in other regions of the country. To get a free copy, visit www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash csa.html. That's www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash csa.html. 
You can also get a paper copy by calling 651-653-0618. That's 651-653-0618. Send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.